All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Is Roe v. Wade about to be overturned? Should it be overturned? And am I allowed to talk about it if I don't have a uterus? We're gonna go ahead and discuss all of these issues today on this episode of Making the Argument, where we make the arguments to defend a free society. Okay, if you've bothered to peruse social media or walk past a TV, any point in the last, I don't know, 20 hours, then you know that right now the Supreme Court is hearing oral arguments on Dobbs versus Jackson women's health. This is a case that could potentially be used to overturn Roe v. Wade, and that is why it is getting so much attention right now. Now, what's the impetus for this? Like, why is it that Dobbs could potentially overturn Roe? Well, let's read up on this. So the case, Dobbs versus Jackson women's health, centers on the law, which bans most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, which is much sooner than the current legal standard, which prohibits abortion bans prior to fetal viability, roughly 23 to 24 weeks into pregnancy. So the reason why this is being used to challenge this is because essentially a state came forward and said, we want to do an abortion ban at 15 weeks, right? Whereas right now there, there's different federal restrictions on when you can actually input an abortion ban. And the line that they have used, the legal justification that they've used is this question of viability, which is to say that if the fetus can exist outside of the womb, right, so it can be you know, emergency C-section, emergency delivery, whatever it, whatever it is, if it can survive outside the mother's direct assistance, all right, then you can, you can have some abortion restrictions all right, prior to that line of viability. All right, that, that's what's been used as, as justification for some of the abortion restrictions that you see through other states. However, this one goes further, takes it all the way to 15 weeks. It has some other measures that can theoretically be used to challenge Roe. And so this is why it's such a big issue and we have so many people that are involved with it. So I want to go through some of the, the fireworks that we've seen with respect to the arguments. I want to talk about some of the responses that you're seeing, some of the commentary that you're seeing on this. And then we're going to analyze. Are, are these good arguments? Are these bad arguments? Um, how, how should we analyze this? Right off the bat, I'm going to tell you, I wish, I wish, I wish Justice Scalia was still alive on the court right now simply because his ability to ask questions is incredible and I would have loved to have seen him be on this case, but that's not the case. So here's a couple of things that, that they've gone over. So throughout the arguments, right, I'm taking this from a news article, throughout the arguments, the justices alternated between examining not just the legal standards for abortion laws based on interests of women and protecting potential life, but also the court's own interest in protecting itself from losing the faith of the public. Now, this is important because this is something that I think we saw 
popularized under uh, Chief Justice Roberts. So when Roberts became Chief Justice and you saw the whole issue with Obamacare and was it constitutional under taxing authority? Was it constitutional under you know interstate commerce clause? Like, did the federal government have constitutional authority to impose something like Obamacare, right? And when Justice Roberts got to the court, he started talking about protecting the integrity of the court. And what was interesting about that is the way that he applied that was it was this assumption that if there was something that was popular or perceived to be popular in the view of the justices, then potentially deciding against it or writing a decision in such a way that would significantly overturn a major piece of legislation all right, would, would, in his opinion, cause the court to lose credibility. Now, here's what I find interesting about that, because you've already seen, like, Justice Amy Conan Barrett said, you know, uh, that Casey, that was a previous case on abortion, very explicitly took into account public reaction. Um, you, you saw Justice Breyer bringing up uh, the whole question of stare decisis and precedent within the court. Um, you saw this one quote uh, by Sotomayor. <laughs> I got to read this. Sotomayor said, will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? Okay, so let's talk about this whole idea of kind of the, the integrity or the public perception of the court. I think one of the reasons why we're in this situation is because we've had too many justices that essentially conducted themselves like activists on the court rather than judges. Because when it, when it comes to a judge, especially a judge with respect to the Supreme Court, the function is to determine whether or not a law violates the Constitution. That's your job. Your job is to determine. Now, this law could be super duper popular, but if it violates the Constitution, then it violates the Constitution. And presumably, your job as a justice on the Supreme Court is to say this violates the Constitution, and so you, you can't enforce this, you can't enact this, or this law is null and void. That is what the Supreme, that is what a justice on the Supreme Court should be doing. Now, if justices had actually consistently over time behaved that way, and they can even write it into their opinions, they can even say, I don't, I, I actually think this law might be a good thing, but it violates this portion of the Constitution, and therefore it can't go into effect unless you amend the Constitution. That would give a justice the ability to explain that I, I'm not prejudiced, I'm not supportive, I, I'm not pro or con for this particular law or its implementation. I'm just saying that it violates this section within the Constitution so it can't be affected. If that had been consistent with our justices, then I think people would be able to look at that and say like, okay, I, I may not like the result, I may like the result, but... Either way, I understand the reasoning because the court is not there to pass judgment on whether or not a particular law is a good idea or a bad idea. This is one of the things that so many people, I think, misunderstand about the Supreme Court. Because when they hear justice, and especially now because the term justice has been used to, has been so perverted within political discourse, that the idea is, is justice is what you think is a good thing, right? Justice is the outcome you want that you believe is the best, right? A Supreme Court justice is there to determine whether or not a law has followed the constitutional process and been enacted and whether or not it violates the Constitution, usually whether or not it violates some sort of civil liberty. Okay, that's what they, that is what they're doing. 
So justice is not this idea that every individual might have in their head with respect to the outcome they prefer. Justice within a legal system is a question of whether or not, from a, from a judge's perspective, on whether or not the proper processes have been followed and whether or not a law has violated the Constitution. Now, this part is going to blow some people's minds. What this means is that the Supreme Court can decide that something is unconstitutional and they can overturn a law. And in the process of overturning that law, it can actually produce a result that nobody prefers and that nobody likes, but it would still be a good decision because we're either a nation of laws or we're not. We're either a nation that understands that before we use the power of government to compel somebody else to do what we want or deprive somebody of life, liberty, or process, there are process or property, there are processes that have to be followed. And when they are followed, that is, on some level, that is a just process. And when they are not followed, that is unjust, even if you might like the particular outcome. Because there's essentially two ways that we achieve justice, and this is very important to understand. From the legislative side, we're trying to achieve justice by writing the law in such a way that actually produces just outcomes. What the court is trying to do is determine on whether or not those laws were written in a just fashion, which is to say, did it follow the legal processes in order to be enacted? Or did it violate those legal processes or the Constitution and the process? Right? But if justices just decide that their job is to take a public opinion poll and decide what they think is best, as a result of that, we don't have justice. That is not, even if you like the particular outcome, that is not a justice system that you want to live under. Let me explain why, because I'm willing to bet nobody here would want to be on trial for their life. Nobody here would be, want to be on trial in a way that could lock them away forever and have a judge or a jury making a decision not based off of the facts of a case, or in this case, not making the decision based off of the clear reading of the Constitution, but doing it based off of their perception of its popularity. That is not a just system. And what, I, what, I, what drives me nuts about Sotomayor's comment here, this whole idea, will the Institute survive the stench that this creates in public perception? The stench that I have, right now with respect to some of the members of this Supreme Court is the idea that they don't feel themselves bound by any sort of intellectually consistent judicial philosophy other than if they like it, then the answer is yes, and if they don't like it, the answer is no. That is what is causing so many people to lose faith within our justice system. So that, that is one of the, and, and I got to hand it to the Mississippi Solicitor General, Scott Stewart, because he said the court could say now that the legit, their legitimacy, because they were talking about previous um, decisions and, and public opinion, he goes, the court could say now that their legitimacy comes from standing on constitutional principles and overruling when appropriate. What a novel idea. Because I, I got, again, I got news for Sotomayor. She may like this idea of popular opinion, or, or again, her perception of popular opinion, deciding what a Supreme Court ruling should be. But there are other cases in U.S. history where the Supreme Court might have made a decision that could have been popular or could have been popular in the minds of the justices that made the decision, which were complete violations of the Constitution. I'm thinking of things like, oh, I don't know, the Dred Scott decision 
so this should be a, a fairly simple standard, and that's not to say that reasonable people cannot agree or disagree on what the Constitution says in a particular case. But the idea that, that public perception is the primary concern of our justices, holy crap, we're in danger. All right, let, let's look at this. So one of, the, one of the questions that came up with this, and this has to do with, you, you have Roe v. Wade, but then you also have the Casey decision, right? Casey versus Planned Parenthood. And all Casey really did was it, it created this, it created this uh, structure within Roe v. Wade and abortion law where, um, you know, again, you have that, that line of viability, which is, again, you can have more abortion restrictions after the line of building than you can before the line of viability. And then the other one was this, this undue burden standard, right? And, and if you really want to see a good takedown of the whole undue burden standard, go look at, at Justice Scalia's comments on this. Because um, Stewart, the, again, the, um, the uh, Mississippi Solicitor General, described it, he goes, um, the decision that went into the undue burden standard, which, uh, which Stewart called the most unworkable legal standard in history. And, and it is, because I, I want you to think about this for a second. This is, this is one of those times where, um, you know, I've said this before on the House floor, other my colleagues have said it too, because we don't write intentions, we write laws, right? So it's very, very important that we write those laws in such a way that, that they, they make sense and they're easy to interpret and we take into account second and third order effects and unintended consequences and all that, right? By, by coming up with this undue burden standard, it's now kind of subjective. Like, how do you write the law in order to determine what an undue burden is? Like, so for instance, some states said, hey, before you get an abortion, you have to get an ultrasound. All right, is that an undue burden? Is it not an undue burden? Right, it, it ends up being this thing where judges just kind of decide, right? They're, it's really, really hard to write a law on that to determine what constitutes an undue burden, right? So one of the things they were talking about was that th that, is, that has actually become a real problem with respect to how legislators handle this issue. He goes, um, this is another important point, and this has to go with the whole line of viability as well. He goes, Stewart then added that Casey did not take into account advancement in medical knowledge. When asked what advancements had taken place since Casey, he pointed to studies on fetal pain, which Sotomayor dismissed as being from a small fringe of doctors and not a sign of an actual advancement of knowledge. She noted that brain-dead people have responded to stimuli, so a fetal response does not necessarily mean anything. Wow. So let me get this straight. Because I'm, I'm, I'm always curious on where the threshold is with respect to following the science. And I'm, I'm, especially, I'm especially curious on, on where the threshold comes with following the science when we're talking about destroying human life. Right? So Sotomayor is saying that, yeah, there's these studies, but she considers them a small fringe of doctors. Again, I don't, I don't know what further justification she gave for that. And she said that brain-dead people have responded to stimuli, so a fetal response does not necessarily mean anything. Okay, that's a pretty bold statement when we're talking about actively destroying human life. And, and there's going to be some people that take issue with me calling it human life. I'm going to explain later why I use that terminology, and I'm going to do so using science, all right? But again, I, I find that interesting. Um, because there, there's another element in here. This, again, this goes to the whole via, uh, uh, viability line. Stewart said it was quintessentially legislative. He later argued that the line discounts the state interest in protecting human life. Justice Elena Kagan questioned whether his viewpoint on when life begins is a religious one. 
Stewart insisted that it is not, and that regardless of when life begins, it is still a human organism involved. Okay, now let's, let's look at this real quick. Because I find this interesting, that, that Elena Kagan would immediately go to this idea of, was well, is your belief in this a religious one? I, I, am, I am curious if she would have asked a similar question um, in another case of someone that was of a different faith. I am very curious on whether or not she would have done that. Maybe she would have. I don't know. But, but let's look at this. But it, it's interesting. Because Stuart insists that it's not. He goes, regardless of when life begins, it's still a human organism. Here's, here's what I find interesting. Um, this whole question of when life begins was not something that we found all that difficult uh, when we're talking about an organism other than human life. It, it just isn't. If you go look at biology textbooks, if you go look at the, the various medical standards that have been, been used to distinguish between a living entity or a non-living entity, it, it hasn't been all that difficult. Now, they may categorize life on, on different levels. You can have sentient life. You can have intelligent life. You can have non-intelligent life. Um, you know, Congress proves that you can have non-intelligent life. But the point is, all right, is that, that you, can have, you can have different categorizations within life, but the whole idea of life generally falls within a variety of characteristics. And those characteristics include things like uh, the potential for reproductive capacity, homeostasis, the ability to turn you know, food or, or some other sort of thing into energy. Um, growth, right? These are all things which suggest or differentiates between a non-living entity and a living entity, right? And, and generally speaking, the way we've always looked at this is that if, if you meet these criteria, um, you know, for some standards, you only got to meet some criteria. For other standards, you got to meet more of those criteria. But if you meet them, then you're considered a living entity, right? Now, guess what? At the moment of conception, you meet all of the standards necessary to be designated a living entity. There's not a single scientist around the world that would find something as complex as a human embryo or even a zygote in a different part of the world and not come to the conclusion, oh my gosh, that's a living entity. But somehow we're supposed to suspend reality when it comes to this issue, not because the science justifies that sort of position, but because a lot of people really want a particular outcome. And if science and if scientific definitions and understanding has to suffer in order to give people an outcome they desire, well, then I, I guess that's how we're going to write the law now. So first things first, when you look at the criteria we use to distinguish between life and non-life, at the moment of conception, it meets all the definition for a living entity. All right, so I haven't said human yet, living entity. Now, here's the next question. How do we distinguish between living entities? Because obviously we don't afford the same legal protections to a dog that we do to a human being. So gosh, what sort of scientific mechanism could we use to distinguish between living entities? How, I mean, there's a number of characteristics. Obviously human beings have certain characteristics that are unique to human beings, or the composition or the order of those characteristics are unique to human beings. So yes, a, a dog can have four limbs, a person can have four limbs. But there's obviously differences in the characteristics between the dog's limbs and the human's limbs, and we use that in order to distinguish between the two. This is basic science. But let, let's go with something a little bit more concrete, since now that we've mapped the human genome. All right, how about deoxyribonucleic acid, DNA? At the moment of conception, you possess all of your DNA. And that DNA is uniquely yours, okay? That, that speaks to the autonomy and the individuality component, and it is uniquely human. 
There is nothing in that DNA that is going to suddenly shift and cause mom to pop out a giraffe. That's not going to happen. You're going to be a human being. So at the moment of conception, you meet the scientific criteria for being living. You meet the scientific criteria for being human. Now, the third question, which doesn't come up here, but which I think is important, is do you meet the legal definition of innocent? And I would challenge anybody on the left to, to tell me that, that that human being at that moment in time doesn't meet the legal definition of being innocent. And we can get into that later as well. So let's, let's look at some of it. But anyways, I just wanted to cover that because I think that's so important. It, it, it's this idea that the moment we stick up for human life in the womb, and, and Justice Alito brings this up. He talks about this being, in many cases, philosophical. And, and there is. There's a philosophical component to this. Because if, if you believe that human beings have inherent worth, and, and here's what I find interesting. Everybody arguing for the abortion side on this believes that human beings have inherent worth. It's a question of which human beings have inherent worth and when they have inherent worth. When they're entitled to protection and when they're not entitled to protection. Right? That, that is the main philosophy. But this idea that any sort of answer that you give to this must be exclusively informed by a particular religious belief is not accurate. First of all, there's nothing wrong with having your worldview being informed by a religious belief. There's nothing, there's nothing less scientific about that by, by, by a belief that is inherently religious than there is by someone that is a committed atheist. Whether or not you actually adopt, believe, and apply scientific principles is not necessarily tied to a religious belief or a non-religious belief. All right, but let's, let's look at something else here because this part is also important when we talk about overturning Roe. Justice Brett Kavanaugh asked Stewart to clarify that he is not arguing for the court to make abortion illegal, but should remain neutral on the issue and let the states handle it. To which Stewart replied, allows all interests to have a full voice. So understand what's going on right here. Nobody in this case is actually arguing for the Supreme Court to make abortion illegal. The question is, is whether or not Roe v. Wade can be overturned because what Roe v. Wade did and what Casey essentially affirmed in most respects was that states could not make it illegal. That's what Roe v. Wade did. And the real question here, whenever you're talking about overturning a previous case, right, they go through different processes of stare decisis and things like that. But the overall thing that you're questioning is, is when you look at the original case, so when you look at the case that created the legal framework from which we are all operating right now, the question that you have in, in deciding whether or not you're going to return it is to determine whether or not the legal reasoning used at that time was appropriate and in keeping with constitutional and judicial traditions within the United States. And, and specifically, and not just judicial traditions, because there's been bad judicial traditions, but it's more the idea of, did you apply um, you know, sound, intellectually honest and consistent constitutional reasoning in order to determine whether or not what you were doing was in line with the protections found in the Constitution. And what, what I find fascinating is that you talk to people that are like just avid, you know, pro-choice, pro-abortion advocates who are also legal scholars, and they will come back and admit that Roe v. Wade was a horribly decided, it was horribly decided, that they, they did not really reference any sort of specific constitutional right that could justify 
preventing a, a legislature or preventing from the people to choose to ban abortion. Right? They, couldn't, they couldn't point to anything, so they just created something out of whole cloth. Why? Because you had justices that wanted it to happen. And so they made it happen. They created this legal framework. And so what Stewart is essentially arguing for is that this was a question that was improperly decided by the court in 73. And so therefore it, should be, it would be more appropriate within our society and within our framework to leave this to the legislatures and the lawmaking authorities. And specifically, he's saying the state lawmaking authorities. So they're not even really advocating for, for a federal change or a federal ban. They're saying that this is a decision that should be made on the state level. Right, so that's what they're talking about here. Um, now, Justice Samuel Alito asked Rickleman, and Rickleman is uh, arguing for the, the pro-abortion side. He said, uh, he asked Rickleman to defend the viability line against the argument that it is arbitrary. Pointing to a woman's interest in being free from the burden of pregnancy, he asked whether that interest is still there post-viability. Similarly, he argued a fetus interest in life is there pre-viability. So what he means by the arbitrariness of this, arbitrariness of this is that what, what is your justification for saying that before a child is viable, like if you're saying the interest of the woman is protected by the court allowing her to have an abortion before the child is viable. What he's asking is, is how is that not kind of arbitrary? Like if, if she desires to not be pregnant after the line of viability, well then why, why can't she abort the child after the line of viability? Right? Not to mention the fact that the line of viability is kind of a moving target. You know, 50 years ago, <laughs> you, you, were not, you were not actually having a child born at like 23 or 24 weeks, and it was surviving outside the womb. That just really wasn't happening. So that line of viability is, is actually changing. Similarly, he argues that, okay, if, if the woman's interest is protected up to the line of viability, but then ignored post-viability, well then... Now the fetus's interest is being ignored pre-viability and they're being respected post-viability, right? So, so why is it the line of viability is the, the key issue here? Um, and, and again, Alito asserted that this comes down to a philosophical debate. Rickleman said that the viability line is good because it does not ask the court to settle that debate. I don't know why that makes something good. Later on, she said that the viability line makes sense because once the court recognizes the woman's interest, they need a line for balancing interests Viability provides a line by giving a marker for when the fetus can survive. Again, the, the, the core issue here that, that I don't seem to understand is if, if the fetus has an interest in survival, which presumably it does, post-viability, then that's, that interest still exists pre-viability. So really what the decision here is you're saying that because at this point the child can exist outside of the mother, that's when their interests become important to the state, not before. I, again, I, I think that's a, that's a troublesome argument. I'll explain why here in a minute. Justice Clarence Thomas focused on the broad constitutional principles involved uh, and what Rickleman was relying on. Early in her presentation, Thomas asked her if she was relying on the theory of autonomy. See, he's bringing up a very good question for autonomy, and we're going to get to that in a second. She said she was looking to that as well as bodily integrity. Later on, Thomas asked what particular constitutional right protects abortion. Rickleman said, it's liberty. Okay, for those of you who've been watching for a while, you have probably heard me say this quite a few times, and that is to discuss what liberty means. <clears throat> liberty, as I look at it, 
is your right to live your life the way that you want, provided you're not infringing on the right of someone else to do the same. And in my opinion, that's the only way that liberty can have any real genuine meaning. Because if I have the liberty to impose my will on you, if I have the liberty to deprive you of life, liberty, or property in order to carry out, in order to live my best life now, right? well, then I am naturally infringing on your liberty, and now liberty is no longer a universal concept. It's a concept that only applies to certain people. It is a privilege, essentially granted by government, to certain people at different stages of their life based off of whatever criteria the government comes up with, I guess. So the idea that she would look at this and say, this is a liberty issue, and here we go. She goes, discussing liberty with Kavanaugh, Rickleman noted that liberty has in the past been held to include marriage, childbearing, and family. The argument is that this includes abortion as part of the family-making decision. Without that, she said, women will never have equal status under the Constitution. This is some of the most tortured legal reasoning I have read in a while. Because what she's essentially saying is that if a woman can't have an abortion, then she doesn't have the same liberty with respect to a man on the question of marriage, childbearing, and family. And so therefore, she cannot be equal under the Constitution. Now, I want you to think about this for a second because this is one of those, this is one of those areas where people get upset when reality doesn't bend to their will or to their notion of what equality should look like. So I don't know why God decided, or if, or if you're an atheist, you can say evolution decided if you would prefer, that women are the ones that have children. Of course, now we've been told that men can have children too, but let's put that aside for a second. If that's the case, then obviously we want our laws to be able to understand and take into account those unique differences between men and women. However, to suggest that because reality allows for one side of the equation to be able to have, to be able to carry a child and the other side not to, to, to suggest that somehow the Constitution is not giving them equal status if the woman is not permitted to terminate the pregnancy, to kill the child, is, is absurd. Not to mention the fact that here's the biggest issue I have with this whole liberty argument. And, and Thomas was actually trying to get to this whole question of bodily autonomy or bodily integrity. Because this is an issue I've heard a lot coming from uh, like libertarian supporters of abortion. And what they essentially say is that the reason why a woman should be able to have an abortion or the reason why a woman shouldn't be prevented from being able to get access to an abortion through the law is because the child is essentially infringing on her liberties. So a woman has bodily autonomy. You've heard a woman, you've heard a lot of people in the pro-choice movement say this as well. My body, my choice. Okay? So that's the argument. It's that the, the baby is infringing on the liberty of the woman and so therefore the woman has the right or the uh, authority to remove the baby from the situation. And if the baby cannot survive outside the womb, again, she's simply removing someone that is infringing on her liberty. That's the general argument that used to be made here from the bodily autonomy or bodily integrity component. Here's why that argument doesn't work. Whenever somebody says, my body, my choice, they are assuming two things right off the bat that destroys the pro-abortion argument. The first thing that they're assuming is that because it is their body, they have bodily autonomy, they have exclusive authority over their body, and other people don't have a right to infringe on their body. Okay? So far, so good? I tend to agree with that. Now, what that means is, or, or the question that we have to ask someone that, that posits this theory of my body, my choice, is why is it your body and why is it your choice? 
Now, they will get very upset when you ask them this question because they think this is obvious. And, and the bottom line is, is I t I, again, I tend to agree with them. But the point that I'm trying to get them to acknowledge is that they are actually explaining a philosophical principle with respect to the concept of individual liberty and bodily autonomy, which is to say that you as a human being, by your very nature of being a human being, you have inherent right and ownership over your body, which means you also have ownership over your choices. And the whole concept of liberty, as I discussed previously, is this idea that I have a right to live as I want, provided it doesn't infringe on the liberty of somebody else. So how do we differentiate between somebody that is engaging in liberty in a just and reasonable fashion versus someone that is engaging in liberty in a way that violates, someone that's engaging in an action that violates the liberty of somebody else? Well, the way that we typically adjudicate this is through the concept of first cause. So if I walk up to you and I punch you in the face, and you punch me back. I don't get to cry and scream that you violated my liberty because I'm the one that initiated the attack. I'm the one that initiated the action. Okay, now let's make it something that's not so aggressive. What if I engage in something that's perfectly legal, but in the process of doing so, I harm you? Well, we generally say that that person then has some sort of legal obligation to make the other person whole. Because even if you didn't intend to cause harm, even if you weren't doing something illegal at the time, if you cause bodily damage or harm to another human being, there is still some sort of restitution and order as a result of that. So this is the whole concept of first cause versus a reaction to the first cause. So unless, unless it can somehow be determined that a sperm and an egg colluded with one another, to impregnate someone completely apart from any sort of action of anybody else, I think you're gonna have a really, really hard time saying that the fetus in the womb is therefore a, an inherent violation of the woman's liberty. Now, the one case that people will make that has some justification to this is the case of rape, because in that case, now we're talking about two victims. The woman did not consent to the act which got her pregnant. Right? The child is not at fault for the act that took place. Right? There is a third party that is to blame here. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're actually, she's making an argument that in general, if two people decide to have sex, they bear no responsibility for the person that was created, despite the fact that they knew that producing a child was a probable or at least a plausible byproduct of engaging in a sexual act. So they knew the consequences of the action, they did it anyways, and now the argument is, well now it's infringing on the woman's liberty. Okay, no, you don't get to make that argument unless you're willing to throw out our whole concept of liberty in the first place, and the whole concept of first cause versus reactions to first cause. But that, that is apparently what is going on here. That is, that is the argument that she's making. And in her argument for bodily autonomy, she actually dismantles her own argument because if the woman is afforded bodily autonomy, then arguably the fetus is also entitled to bodily autonomy. In making an argument for liberty, she's destroying the concept of liberty. Because if your liberty is essentially the ability to infringe on the rights, liberties, and bodily autonomy of someone else, well then now you're, you're not talking about liberty as a general principle, you're talking about liberty selectively applied to whoever is the most powerful within the relationship, to whoever is the most powerful within society. Well, that's not typically the, the brand of liberty that we've tried to push within the United States and what we fought so long and hard for within the United States. So 
let, let's kind of recap here. <clears throat> the problem that we have in this country, and, and again, there's going to be some people that say that there should be a constitutional amendment protecting life. Again, I, I think you're supposed to be entitled to life, liberty, and property. So I, I, I don't understand uh, this idea where in this one case we're going to make a special exception where you can destroy innocent human life purely for convenience. And people get mad when I use that term convenience. But honestly, if you actively engage in a sexual act, knowing they could bring about the absolute dependency of another human being upon you, you, know, you and the person that got you pregnant for nine months, and then you decide that you're going to abort the child because you don't want to deal with the consequences of that action, I'm sorry, that fits the definition of convenience. And I am not going to side with the person that wants to destroy the innocent human life because I believe it sets a horrible precedent, not just for the case of abortion, but for how we look at human life in general and with respect to what we're willing to allow or put up with on what one person can do to another person, provided that there is a popular movement supporting it. And what we're seeing right now in this overall debate, whether this ends up becoming, whether this overturns Roe and this ends up going back to the legislatures, and, and we have different laws in different states governing this, which I, I think is probably you know, one of the potential outcomes of all of this. What this really comes down to is, is I believe, an, an issue of the human mind and the human heart. We either believe that human life is unique and special and worthy of protection, or we don't. Because if we're going to start setting up arbitrary lines of when human life has value and when it does not, that's going to be very problematic because of all the implications that come along with it. And if you think I'm being hyperbolic right now, you've either studied nothing within the eugenics movement or even the general history of the 20th century where we had example after example after example. This is in recent history, example after example after example of one set of human beings dehumanizing another set of human beings based off of criteria that had nothing to do with their essential humanity, but everything to do with things as arbitrary as skin color, as gender, and now as with age. So if we're going to defend human life, then we have to draw the line, and the line has to be drawn when human life begins. Otherwise, I'm sorry, it doesn't have a great deal of meaning. This is a bunch of just powerful groups debating with one another on when they can arbitrarily decide human life has no meaning. And I really question the intentions of anybody that wants to try to settle on that. And this is not to condemn anybody that has had an abortion. I am not doing that. I have good, fr I have, <laughs> I have good friends that are abortion survivors. And I know Planned Parenthood and the abortion movement wants to pretend like they don't exist. They exist. I also have good friends that have had abortions. I've seen those two people come together and talk and discuss this issue and do it in a way that was civil and loving and understanding. So understand, I've said this once, I've said this on the House floor and I'll say it again. I am not presuming or suggesting that I know what it is like to be that young woman that finds themselves in a situation that they did not plan for or anticipate. But I do know what it is like to be her son. And I'm very thankful that she chose me because there was a significant sacrifice for her in that choice that affected the rest of her life. But one of the things that it imparted to me was a sense of empathy 
for the most vulnerable within our society. And if you think for one second, any of my, my passion for this comes from a desire to manipulate, control, or judge another person, it does not. It is founded in the idea that if we really believe human life has value, then we have to be able to defend it. And those of us who have the ability to defend it have to step up and do so. And quite frankly, I am not going to apologize to any person or industry that would attempt to justify this sort of practice or manipulate women into believing that this is their only option or far worse and far more perverse, as we have seen in some of the protests in front of the Supreme Court, convince women that abortion is actually a symbol of empowerment. And so the thing I would tell any pro-life activist, anybody that believes in the pro-life position, our job is not just to sit here and pray over this issue, pray over this court decision, advocate for the things we want with respect to policy and legislation, but ultimately we have to be able to work toward providing the conditions and a culture of life where the idea that anybody would consider abortion would seem absurd, not just because it's illegal, but because there is a full understanding for the beauty in that human life and the beauty in the potential family to be. And we need to make sure that we're the ones standing out front to assist that, encourage that, and be there to provide the emotional, the material, and the spiritual support to someone that is going through a very tough time in their lives and is desperately looking for hope, compassion, and love. Thank you very, very much for joining us today on this issue. Again, please keep this decision in your prayer. Keep the moms in prayer, the unborn children in prayer, the fathers in prayer. Pray for them diligently and then ask yourself, what can you do to be a factor, to be a positive impact within the lives of the people that may be struggling with this decision in your life, in your sphere of influence, whether it's through volunteering at a crisis pregnancy center in your neighborhood, whether it's operating through your church, whether it's someone that you know that you can reach into their lives and provide them the hope, compassion, and love they need to be able to raise that child. That's what we need to do next. That is the best advocacy you can provide for the pro-life movement. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.